stupid Braves keep beating the Mets, and I don't like it. And also, no one can find Cespedes right now. <laughs> what? Yeah, no one knows where he, where he is. They say they're not worried for his safety, but no one has any idea where he is. That probably means they do know. What, he's just like hungover? They're just not divulging. <laughs> good times, good times. This is not a baseball podcast, though. It could be, but probably not. Hey, babe. Yeah, babe. Remember that time we watched Pet Cemetery? You mean the 1989 Stephen King adaptation classic starring the Ramones and that's it? Yeah, it's all about the Ramones. Yeah. That's where that song came from, guys. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about this 1989 horror classic today. I'm Nicole. I am Topher. And we're the Horror Babes, here to bring horror straight to your headphones or speaker or, or whatever. passing semi-trucks going way too fast down a residential road. Yeah. We'll definitely, we'll definitely talk about that for sure. Yeah, so today the format's the same. We're going to talk about who made this thing, who was in it, and then we're going to go into plot, and then we'll go into a little bit of a deeper analysis of the film. So Topher, That is what we do here. Yeah. Who made this thing? Well, as we said up top, it was written by Stephen King as an adaptation from his novel of the same name. Mm-hmm. He did write the screenplay for this. Originally, George Romero was going to direct this. And then it ended up being Mary Lambert. Yes. Who directed a bunch of music videos for like Madonna. Some of the um, really famous ones, yeah. Yeah, Madonna, Sting, Janet Jackson. She seems Chris like a pretty, Isaac. Yeah, she seems like a pretty cool lady. So. Yeah, um, she's done a bunch of cool stuff. I mean, lately it's been more like kind of direct-to-TV stuff and a bunch of documentaries that she's in. She also did a good amount of like television directing, but she's well known as both a music video director and as a horror director. Uh, definitely in part because of this movie. Yeah. Um, she for also sure. directed the sequel of this. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. And Halloween Town 2. Oh, that I didn't know. That's cool. <laughs> Love Halloween Town, that whole franchise. Oh my God. I've still never actually seen them. They're cute. They're very cute. I'm sure. Yeah. Little, little gateway drug for little Nicole. <laughs> to be into creepy shit. The music was done by Elliot Goldenthal. Really nice soundtrack here. Obviously, the two Ramones songs, uh, which are, turns out are is like one of uh, Stephen King's favorite bands. Yes, Mary Lambert jokes that that's the only reason she got the job because she was really good friends with the Ramones, right? Namely, Dee Dee Ramone. Yeah. Um. So yeah, she she kind of jokes that. The only reason I even got this job was because Stephen King is such a huge Ramones fan. <laughs> <laughs> There's worse reasons that people have been hired. Yeah. Uh, let's see. And then cinematography was done from Peter Stein, mm-hmm. uh, most famous for doing Friday the 13th Part 2, as in the one when Jason shows up. Mm-hmm. I know him best from Ernest Goes to Jail <laughs> and it. Ernest Saves Christmas. Yeah, that's that's pretty much um, editing from Daniel P. Henley and Mike Hill. And then the cast. So this is a fun cast. Uh, definitely several people in here that some are a little more recognizable than others, mm-hmm. particularly, obviously, Fred Gwynn, who was Herman Munster. Yeah, which I didn't I didn't realize. Yeah, I had no idea until I was reading that. We were calling him Anthony Bourdain because he's got yeah. Bourdain vibes. Rest yeah. in peace. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Um, Dale Midkiff as the very hot Lewis Creed. Whoo, guys, he is a daddy. <laughs> yeah. In every sense of the word in this movie. <laughs> My God. He's he's very hot. He's got this like combination like Adam Scott and Nathan Fillion thing going on. Mm-hmm. Big mood. Denise Crosby as Rachel Creed, his wife and the mother of their kids. Fashionista. Yeah, v- amazing fashion from her. And yeah. I realized who I kept thinking she looked like. It's Robin Wright. Mm-hmm. 
That makes sense. I see that. Uh, Brad Greenquist as Victor Pascal, not Jimmy Simpson traveling back in time, which is what <laughs> I was thinking because he looks yeah. exactly like him. For sure. Uh, Miko Hughes, uh, who's like three years old in this movie, as Gage. And Blaise Bordal as Ellie, the daughter and owner of Church, the cat. The kitty cat. Uh, I know Blaise Bordal best from We're Back. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is a movie I watched incessantly. Mm-hmm. That was my Jurassic Park. Got it. Got it. Because it was just like dinosaurs, like John Goodman as a dinosaur hanging out in New York City. I was like, that's everything I've ever wanted. Oh, yeah. I think I've actually seen that. Yeah, that we watched really it familiar. way, way back, like early in our relationship. Oh, we did? <laughs> yeah. Oh, shoot. Okay. Yeah. I, I, re- I, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> but Jurassic Park was my Jurassic Park. I love I love that movie. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other only, only other person I really wanted to shout out in the cast was the uh, the head of the makeup department. Mm-hmm. That was uh, David Leroy Anderson. As he was credited as Dave Anderson in this. Yeah, he has done so much. Like I mean, production crew, you're gonna like work way more than actors or directors, generally speaking. Right. You're just able to work on more things at the same time. Yes. Obviously, the makeup in this was stunning. I really, really liked. That was one of the, my favorite production aspects of this was yeah, with I mean, the like, cinematography was very good, but yeah. Yeah. With like Zelda and then yeah. having to um, do a lot of makeup on the people when they've come back. Yes. The baby and Gage and the mother. Rachel, yeah. Rachel, they come back and are zombies, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but some of his more notable ones, like he's obviously worked, he obviously worked on this film and extensively afterwards, but he did... Dawn of the Dead, the 2004 remake. Mm-hmm. He did Lords of Dogtown. He did Cabin in the Woods. Nice. Recently was like the creature designer and special makeup, uh, special effects makeup designer for Scream Queens, uh, the Exorcist series that came out. He worked on Dunkirk and The Lab and has done like every season of American Horror Story. What a fun job or just like right. what a fun career, I guess, that like all of those jobs sound super fulfilling and fun. Definitely. It's uh, it's funny that there's just people I've know I know makeup artists and like special effects artists and they just love every day that they go to work. I love that. Never bad to have a little uh, creature feature situation going on, you know? For sure. So that's basically it on who made this. Um, it was a box office surprise mm-hmm. in terms of it. Everybody was like it. The studio didn't even want to make this movie because there had been 10,000 Stephen King adaptations already in like the last 10 years before this. So they were like, yeah, "Yeah, I don't really think we should do this. But then there was the writer's strike in 88. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, well, fuck it. It's already written. So we don't have to pay anybody to write it. We can't, we don't have to do scabs or like, you know, whatever. So I guess we're going to make this movie. (laughs) That's true. That's true. And that kind of, kind of, to be honest, shows in the movie. It's, you know, it's entertaining, but... It feels like a cash grab. Yeah, it's it's entertaining, but it's not a great movie. There is a big difference. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it cost $11.5 million to make, and it made 57.5 back. All right. Coolio. So, <laughs> <laughs> I guess now let's uh, head on into plot, right? Yeah, definitely. This plot is, uh, yeah, there's like 17 plots. This is my big issue with every Stephen King story is there's just so many plots. Well, and you could have cut out a couple of subplots here. Definitely. You you really could have. And that's that's an adaptation problem, which we'll talk about after we talk about the plot. But for the time being, buckle in. 
because <laughs> it's about to get a little wild. I'm going to do my absolute <laughs> best, I promise. Yeah. So, the Creed family, Lewis, Rachel, and their children, Ellie and Gage, are mm-hmm. moving from Chicago to Ludlow, Maine, because Lewis has now got a job as a physician at the University of Maine. Which, it's actually shot in Maine. Yes. They, um, uh, the director, Mary Lambert, was like, I was so thrilled that Stephen King and, and the producers and everyone was like, gung-ho about actually shooting it in Maine, because usually they're just like, we're going to shoot it wherever it's cheapest. Exactly. Um, And Maine is not super cheap to film in. Yeah, it's pretty remote. So she was stoked that they really wanted to do that. And they went on this like wild goose chase for this home. And mm-hmm. when they found the perfect home, there wasn't a tree. And the first scene is, or one of the first scenes is the little girl. Ellie, yeah, yeah. She skins her knee. Well, she's in the she's in the tire swing. Right. And it falls off of the tree and then the cat jumps down and it's like, it's apparently a very uh, substantial moment in the book. So right. they really wanted to keep that, but there was no tree in the front yard. So the director and everybody else literally had a tree get uprooted and then replanted it oh in front God. of this house. That's wild. Yeah. it's And she was like, I had them assure me that like the tree would stay alive. I wouldn't have done this if I was just going to kill a tree. And I guess the tree stayed alive. Yeah. Huh. Just interesting little factoid there. Yeah, that's <laughs> I I nev- did not even think about where the tree came from. Well, they <laughs> found I a know. perfect house, but it was just treeless, you know. I have run into that issue. Production scouting is hard. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they've moved into this big old Victorian creepy house, and Herman Munster lives across the street. <laughs> He's so good in this, guys. He He's... gives a really great performance. The performances in this aren't like all stellar, but he really gives a standout performance. He really does because you. you from the moment you meet him, you're not sure where he stands. Yeah, he's got this some sort of like darkness to him, but also kind of that grandfatherly mm-hmm. warmth to him. Right. So yeah, it's it, it's it's off-putting in a weird way where it's like familiar to the audience, yeah. but also kind of like I know this is a horror film, so like where is this guy gonna go? Exactly. You know, the neighbor always knows more. Yeah, you know? especially the old neighbor who said, yeah, "Oh, that house is still empty far too long." Yeah, yeah, seen some shit. And he just like, yeah, he has like some funny sentences like that that probably came straight from the book um, that are super, super like ominous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely has this sort of like, we've talked about the the role of the harbinger before. Yeah. And he's got a lot of those vibes to him. We almost have two of those because we have the housekeeper. Yes. Who's coming in in a second, but she kind of also plays that role Mm -hmm. of the harbinger. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Herman Munster is actually named Judd Crandall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they're curious about this path that's leading back to the woods behind their house. He's like, oh, that's a story for another time. Joel settled in. <laughs> so so awesome. he takes them back there to the pet cemetery. And that's when we see that it is misspelled as S-E-M-A-T-A-R-Y in which children's is, handwriting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is why Stephen King named the book with incorrect spelling. Right. It's a reference to that. And yeah, it's in the forest behind their home. And he explains, oh, this is a beautiful place. And he talks about how death in cemeteries are wonderful things. Mm -hmm. And it's this really actually nice moment. Do you think it's going to be this creepy reveal? And actually, it's very sweet. Yeah. Yeah. We get a lot with that character. Yeah. Yeah. And it's Ellie learning about death. Well, Rachel's pissed about her daughter learning about death. She doesn't want it to be like that. And she's got a bunch of anxiety over it. 
Which is which we learn later in the movie, like exactly why she. Yeah. Because it didn't really register with me until we got to about halfway through the movie, and then we learned about Rachel's past. Yeah. And then you kind of you're kind of like, oh, so that's why she was really hesitant on teaching her daughter about. Yeah, this movie watches like a book a bit. Yeah. In the way that like things are revealed and all of that. Definitely. But Lewis is like, look, she's got to learn about it sooner or later. Mm-hmm. This is a nice, easy way for her to sort of get acquainted with that. Mm-hmm. And of course, Ellie's all paranoid about her do- her cat dying now because she's just seen this pet cemetery. She's like, I want church to live forever. Yeah. Very sweet. Very true to children. How they think. Oh, yeah. And everything. Yeah. yeah. That's that's learning about death 101 is, you know. Yeah. You don't you don't want them to. <laughs> no. <laughs> so Lewis goes to his first day at work and this guy, Pascal, has been hit by a passing truck. And it's like half his head is off. You know, it's a, you know, this, a great like, creature makeup here. This story like wouldn't happen or a lot of the story wouldn't happen if these huge semis weren't <laughs> just like flying by. On Someone this really road. needs to do something about that. Yeah, I kept saying that. <laughs> <laughs> So he's killed, but it's we get this nice moment from Lewis saying, like, they're like the one of the nurses is saying, uh, "Well, look, he's already dead. Like, we can't save him." And Lewis says, "That might be, but I'm not gonna. I'm I'm doing this by the book." Like, you see this sort of um, compassion to him in yeah. multiple moments. We talked, we kept talking about it. these. Were, he had all these hero moments throughout it. Yeah. So Pascal is like lying dead on the table, mm-hmm. and suddenly comes back to life and said says something about um, nothing stonier than a man's heart. Yeah. And the land beyond there is sour Lewis. And he says his name. He's like, how the fuck did you know my name? <laughs> yeah. So that's our that's our first kind of like camp, camp yeah. moment. I mean, this, yeah. the acting is in this is very camp. And oh, 100%. especially from um, our two leads, uh, mm-hmm. Rachel and Lewis. 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 I was thinking of his of the actor's name. Rachel and Lewis give us some very campy performances, which oh, yeah. a lot of people hated. A lot of people thought like yeah. have these have, have these two ever acted? They're giving us like B B rated horror movie acting. Right. And you never know how much of that is the actor and how much of, of that is the direction. But yeah, I didn't really connect with either of their either of their acting styles either. So. I yeah, I did, but we, we can dive into that a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, in a bit. Anyway, later that night, uh, yeah, Pascal comes back to Lewis as a ghost and he has these sort of like very silly, f- sort of darkly funny moments. Yeah. That I really enjoyed. I loved his performance in this. I thought he was one of the better people we saw in this. Yeah. And he takes him out to the pet cemetery and Lewis keeps just being like, this is a dream, this is a dream, I will wake up. And there's this line of Lewis is like, don't go doing that now, Lewis. Yeah, yeah. And he points over to the the deadfall behind the cemetery that we'd seen earlier Mm -hmm. and says, look, don't cross that barrier. The ground beyond is sour. So Lewis wakes up and he thinks it's all a dream. He's in bed. And then he pulls his sheets back and his feet are just covered in dried mud and like pine needles and his sheets are just like all fucked up. (laughs) Yikes, dude. (laughs) Like, what did you get into? Right. Yeah. At some point along this way around halloween right is when missy kills herself yes so she's been taught complaining about her stomach pains and like says uh, tells rachel wish i'd married a doctor maybe i could do something about these stomach pains but then lewis offers to take a look at her at them for her and she's like nope nope no need it'll pass they always do yeah yeah and like 
This is the scene where she she kills herself, right? Yeah. Or soon after. We, we've seen a couple of scenes with her, but they're just sort of minor little moments from her. And she's kind of the harbinger. And, and, and yeah. when you get a suicide from a side character who's been in the situation for a while, then, mm-hmm. I mean, you inherently are going to start thinking like, oh my God, like they've been driven crazy or like their mind has, you know, you, you yeah. just, it, a lot of horror films and stories use that as like you could be next sort of thing. Yes. And her her suicide is actually pretty brutal to watch because yeah. because it was clearly directed as a last minute hesitation and it looks like her feet slip. Oof, yeah. Um yeah, which she is, hangs herself. Yeah, it's um which I don't ever put it past Stephen King to make something quite heavy handed. Um, yeah, that he's a bit that way so, yeah so adding so adding that detail into it where it's not just like suicide suicide but has you questioning like were they hesitating and yeah. their feet slipped because it it really looked like that to me mm-hmm. um so yeah so that's a, that's another you know moment <laughs> it was a good moment though i mean there are yeah. a lot of like moments in this movie that i find particularly good yeah. It's weird. I go so back and forth. I was going so back and forth while watching this. Yeah. But that was one of those that made me say, oh, this is great. Mm-hmm. So Thanksgiving comes and we find out that Lewis and Lewis is not on good terms with his in-laws. Yes. And that has said that he'll never be ex- uh, accepted into the family, which we're like, you and I both just go, but he's a doctor, honey. I know. It doesn't make <laughs> any fucking sense. It's like, it's like he's... A hot doctor. Right. What more do parents want for, like, if, if that's their values of, like, mm-hmm. we're going to, we want our daughter to get married and have children, who, like, wh- where do they get off? You know, like, yeah. what's what's good enough for you? A hot, compassionate doctor. A hot, doctor. compassionate doctor. Bro. Bro. <laughs> Sign me up for the next war. <laughs> you want to stay forever? <laughs> but Mulan joke for you guys. All of them. Yeah. So while the rest of the family is gone, Ellie, Church, and no, so sorry, Ellie, Gage, and Rachel are off in Chicago with Rachel's family. Mm-hmm. Church gets run over by a truck. Yeah, we we have so many encounters with these trucks. Like we have Gage almost getting hit in the first scene. In the first scene, after um, Ellie falls off of the or the tire swing snaps and falls right. to the ground, which I'm I was kind of like I get that both of y'all are concerned, but you have two kids and you're two people. Always be watching the second one. Pretty damn easy what to the not hell? like, yeah. And that's what actually how even how we meet Judd is because he just snatches yeah. Gage out of the road. Like, nope, he not said, today. Not today, <laughs> not today, Satan, not today. Um, but yeah, so the cat like gets run over by right by a semi, which horrifying. Yes, it's a very fl- it, like again. This was like oh god, sorry. I'm just thinking about again the production design and how good it was. But like a hit by a truck cat. Like ugh. the small details here again, where he has to like peel it off the road and everything, was ugh. just like ugh, like a pancake. God. So Judd and Lewis sit down and have some drinks, and they're Judd's very concerned about Lewis, and especially about Ellie because he's really taken a love, a, like a grandfatherly role with Ellie, and Definitely. kind of a fatherly role with Lewis. Definitely, yeah. Which uh, that's apparently explored more in the books because Lewis's father died when he was three. Right. So, so they get, get a close more really fast. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So Judd doesn't want Ellie to be sad, and he tells you know tells Lewis is like she'll have to learn about death eventually, but it doesn't have to be today. Yeah. So he's like, all right, just follow me, and we'll get this taken care of. 
Mm-hmm. And they go through the cemetery. He's like, you want me to bury him here? He goes, no, 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 no. We're going past. Yeah. And this old man is just like limberly skipping over this deadfall. Oh, which yeah. Which is very dangerous. And he's just Death. like, don't look down. Follow me. And I've got gotcha. you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they make it past. And there's this whole trek through the mountains yeah. behind the house. And eventually they reach what Judd informs Lewis is a Mi'kmaq burial ground. Um, Mi'kmaq being a First Nations tribe from the like Algonquin region, Mm -hmm. um, particularly around Maine, Nova Scotia, the eastern coast of uh, North, what's now North America. Yeah. Um, I guess the northeastern coast of what is now North America. Right. So yeah, Judd's like, right, Lewis, you got to do this work yourself. The soil's thin, but it's, it's yours to dig. I'm going to go over here and smoke. (laughs) Yeah. Which I just love. He's like, I'm going to kick back and have some cigarettes. You're mm-hmm. going to bury this cat in this in this burial ground. Yep. And then just says, whatever, whatever. And then just says, what we did here tonight didn't happen. You're not going to tell a single soul about this. Creepy. Very creepy. Creepy, Judd. Yeah. What, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> so the next day, Judd finds church. Um, but the cat who was all like cute and cuddly and fun and very warm before is now stinky stinky sluggish and like constantly hissing with these terrifying glowing eyes which is like not unfound for cats you're like right you're like uh yeah this could be a cat this could still. be a cat it doesn't have to be a demonic cat but no it's a scary cat yeah but he gets a nice <laughs> scratch across his face too for it Ooh. again could just be a normal cat could yeah so lewis is like judd what the fuck did i do <laughs> and Judd's like, well, so you know how I told you about that dog I had that died of old age? Well, it kinda didn't. It kinda, I kinda buried it up there when I was young, and then it came back and attacked us all, and I had to kill it. Ooh. <laughs> but he thought that maybe church was gonna be different and wanted to save Ellie all that grief. Yeah. It's a little while later. We're having fun. We're out flying kites. Mm-hmm. Whole family's just hanging out together. It's a nice little scene out in the, the out in the yard. And Judd lets or not Judd. And Lewis lets Gage start flying the kite. But Kate Gage drops it because he's a child. That's what they do. Yeah. And starts chasing after it. Oh god. And no one's paying fucking attention to Again, the three year old. I was like, learn from your mistakes. Why does it have to take like twice? And like a tragedy for you to learn, like, I don't know, that that should scare you to your core when your child almost gets hit by a semi. Right. And you should, I Get a fucking fence built. Jesus Christ. You're a doctor. You have the money. Oh, yeah. You've already had, yeah, your kid almost get hit and the cat die. Right. Like, what more do you, what more, like, evidence do you need that you probably need to build a fence? (laughs) Sure, the semi could come off the rails and crash through, but- Whatever. But at least it's like... That, the kid won't run in the more road. Of, yeah, that's more of a freak accident. Yeah, that's acts of not, God are different. Yeah. This time there's no one to save the child because somehow an adult man who is four times taller than this little toddler can't do a 40-yard dash in time to save his son. Mm-hmm. And of course we get the uh, distracted driver thing. The Ramones are bad for babies, it turns out. Wu-Tang is for the children. Ramones is for killing them. Hey. <laughs> He's just banging out to fucking uh, uh, Sheena's a punk rocker, which is one of my favorite Ramon songs. Yeah. And he's just like headbanging, having a great time. But of course, sees Gage and tries to slam on his brakes, flips his truck, and Gage's foot flies off. 
Ugh, that bloody toddler the details. Foot. Oh my Good God. God. It's horrifying. So obviously everyone is just fully devastated. There's screaming. There's a holding of a dead child in the road and Ugh. screaming no. And no one is well. Rachel's dad gets in a fight with Lewis at the funeral. This scene is wild. They yeah. almost they almost cut this out because of the part where the the casket kind of oh, opens God. for a yeah. second. You see the hand, yeah, um, because they thought it was too sad and took away from the scary aspect of the film. But Stephen King was very adamant about keeping it in, and they eventually were just like, "All right, it'll just be sad and scary." Honestly, cool. good call. Yeah, because that is like that is what King is very good at. Definitely, and when he when he hits that sad, scary stride, he there's almost none like him. Yeah. So this Again, is very heavy handed. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is also where we learn about around this time is when we learn that the history of Rachel and her sister. Yeah. Yeah. So we learned that yeah we learned that Rachel had an elder sister Zelda who had spinal meningitis. That's right. Which is a, a death sentence. Yes. And we get this wonderful flashback of Rachel trying to take care of her sister. Mm-hmm. And I love how they went through casting this role because they kept, uh, Mary Lambert kept looking for a woman to play this role and decided on a theater actor from New York. Yeah. Who was like uh, in a bunch of local troops and things like that mm-hmm. and did mostly indie theater. And I think that was a great call. Like we've talked about this multiple times in different iterations of the show. Hiring a dancer or a theater person to do body work. Mm-hmm. For films, always a good call. Never bad. Yeah, definitely smart. Yeah, and it's this this really exaggerated looking, like, demonic caricature. Because yeah. spinal meningitis does deform your body, but not quite like that. Right, of course, leave it to a horror film to just take that and run with it, you and know? again, approve. Full approve. Yeah. I... I, I struggle with the with with this subplot personally because I don't think it was completely necessary other than just being a flex right for like the um, makeup and effects team right um and the actor who 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 played Zelda I just I don't know for the for the plot's sake with the whole thing with the whole movie being about how people deal with death. I didn't think that it was necessarily necessary for yeah. Rachel's story like that. I don't know. I see how it works in the book. I have, n- exactly. Not having read the book, it's a totally exactly. a book plot line, though. Exactly. I think it was a great idea for the book, but could have been cut for the movie. Yeah, it, it goes on a bit long, and it's a little... I don't know. I, I love the horror of it. It is very scary and very tragic, and that's the two things that this keeps being. Yeah, because it is all about the tragedy of loss and grief, and the and the complications of it, because of how Rachel discusses her feelings towards Zelda dying, how she wished yeah. for it to happen, and how she felt pure joy when it did happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get that it's exploring the more complicated sides of how we view death, but. Again, I think better in book form, in movie form. I right. think it just makes it a little convoluted. Yeah, it's a little too many things, you yeah. know. So Rachel and the rest of the family go to or Rachel and Ellie go to stay with her parents in Chicago. Yes. Lewis is supposed to join them shortly, but he needs to get finish some things up with work and all of that is what he says. <laughs> Which we find out is a lie. Yes. Because Judd starts getting these weird feelings and no one can get in contact with Lewis. Because Rachel's trying to call him. 
Judd tries to call him. Judd goes over to the house, doesn't see him. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, God damn it. I know what this boy's about to do. Oh, yeah. And then it's just kind of a race to the finish line here. Right. From here on out. And before before Judd manages to, or before Lewis does all this, uh, Judd does tell him the story of a person having been buried up there before. Because early in the movie, we had forgotten to mention that, like, yeah, Lewis asks, has anyone ever tried burying a person up there? And Judd goes, no, who would do such a thing? Yeah. He's lying. There was a local man named Bill Baderman whose son Timmy was killed in World War II. Bill was devastated by the loss, takes his son Timmy up to the burial ground and buries him. But Timmy returned as a malevolent zombie. Yay. And <laughs> just destroyed, like was hurting people and hated everything. So Judd and some other men from the town go to just like burn tip Bill and Timmy's house down because they want to kill Timmy with fire. Yeah. Which, you know, I understand the inclination. For sure. Uh, but Timmy attacks his father, Bill, mm-hmm. uh, and they are both burned in the house. So this is when Judd's, this is when we get that sort of flip. So earlier in the, in the, we hadn't really gone into this earlier when we were discussing the plot, but this initial trope, the, pr- the like what primes the pump, is the whole Indian burial ground trope, which is steeped in anti-native sentiment and racism and is like a real problem. Like you would know this from, it's been used countless times, which is itself a problem, but most notably would probably be poltergeist. Yeah, And you've heard your, you know, fair share of urban urban tales and things like that. Yeah. Urban legends. Yeah, and and in a way... It just it, it is racist in the way that it just demonizes kind of their traditional spiritualities, their, their traditional, yeah. yeah, and um, their culture really. Mm-hmm. Like it's 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 all a it's all a part of that. So yeah, that kind of turned me off for a second. I was glad that they really didn't harp on that too right. much, and especially in this moment, this is what I think redeems it. Is that so? Judd's like you know they learned that this place was evil. That something had happened. The soil had gone sour. So they left it alone and we should too. We were wrong to do this. So it's this sort of thing of like, no, they fucked off. They were like, nope, we are not using this ground anymore because the soil is sour. So we are going someplace else. Yeah. And I think that's a nice, a better way of handling this. I'm not. Of course, leave it to to a white man to be like, no, I know. I know better than that. I'm going to defy all of those things and then just go do it anyway. I I realize that with grief... You're not how many how many people actually think rationally when they're in <laughs> in the throes of like very new and early stage grief like right. nobody but still leave it to a white man to be like oh these you know Native Americans like they they didn't know what they were talking about I'm gonna go you know defy all of these things like exactly it, yeah. it's it's just blatant disrespect hundred percent and Judd. I think means well, but it also acts in the same sort of arrogant way. Yeah. And I think he's acting out of grief as well. And the grief right. of like trying to protect a child from growing up too quickly. Yeah. And obviously Lewis is acting out of grief for a lost child, which is something I hope I never experience. Exactly. I, I like I said to you, that's not the way it's supposed to go. You're right. not supposed to see your child die. You're, it's supposed to be the other way around. Yeah. And it's really devastating when it happens that way. So regardless, yes, Lewis does exhume his, like, digs his son's body up and starts taking to the ground. Now Pascal reappears and starts warning Rachel. This is when the whole 
alarm we were talking about was going on earlier. Yeah. And Rachel's like, fuck it, I'm coming to Maine. And we get this kind of like home alone sequence from her. Totally, where she's like running through the airport, trying to get a flight. And then Hitching she hitch- a ride. Does she get a flight or does she just hitchhike? No, she gets a flight and then and hitches. And then hitch. Yeah, yeah she has to fly right. to like Banger or something like that. So then we've got a-, a semi again. She gets picked up by right. a semi and she's like, I know you're going to drive by my fucking house because you, you guys do every day. <laughs> Um, you killed my baby. Killed, killed my fucking baby. So, um, yeah, she. It, it is kind of like a Home Alone moment where yeah. she's like racing, racing to the uh, finish line, and of course, and sadly, it's not Catherine O'Hara. Oh God, treasure, treasure among treasure. <laughs> I love her. She's a gift to this world. So yeah, Gage does come back to life and steals his daddy's special scalpel. Yeah, and it's not great. um i don't i i learned from this movie there's no good kind of baby murder yeah i thought that like i knew the i knew the like normal kind of like murdering babies bad i knew that but it turns out babies murdering other people also bad this part kind of like i said when when the baby started attacking people with this with the scalpel (laughs) it lost me yeah there's a lot of suspension of disbelief that has to happen here and i was not prepared to suspend here yeah i just was kind of like uh this is kind of this has gone from camp to just complete silliness yeah because like judd was played by herman munster who is a f- clone of Frankenstein or Frankenstein's yes. monster. Don't fucking come for me. I don't fucking care. Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah, the real monster isn't Frankenstein's monster. The real monster is you. If you start correcting people about that shit. Yeah. So yeah, like this large, large man, right? Yeah. <laughs> Hired for his stature to play that role. And yet we've got a one foot, probably less. Well, I'd say like a foot and a half. Foot and a half like child. I don't know. I've anyone who's interacted with a toddler understands their weight and their stature. Like how many people like I've I've had the joy of babysitting some toddlers and you know they they love to be like thrown thrown around Absolutely. if you're on if you're playing on the bed or if you're you know in a swimming pool they yeah. love to be we know how easy it is to just kind of Toss a child and let them be happy. Yeah, launch them up in the air. They love it. They love it. So we all know how easy that is. You can do it for an hour and then you get tired, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like... (laughs) And it's a nice workout. Yeah, yeah. It's a good like weight. So Um, in this situation, all you have to do is what my dad to me when I was little and toss me up into a ceiling fan. Oh, God. (laughs) Yikes. Oh, no. Supposedly an accident. Not not playing any blame here. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so, so this is really where it completely lost me yeah where i was just like ah guys like once again maybe in the book it's described in a way that is can keep you but the imagery is just a little tough kind of insane until we get to the gore yeah the gore is cool so gage does take his daddy's scalpel and judd and ends up killing judd by slashing his achilles tendon his face and then bites his throat to kill him crazy yeah rachel makes it back Pascal's warning her from behind. He can't go any further, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So she starts to go home, and then she gets lured into Judd's house by the cat and the voice inspector of her dead sister, Zelda. Yes. And then she's like, oh, no, it's Gage, but he has a scalpel in his hand. And she's like, oh, my son. And he, she like goes down to hug him, and he just murks her. Yep. Hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lewis wakes up and finds Gage's muddy footprints all over the house and finds that his scalpel's missing. 
And he gets a phone call from Gage that he played with Judd and Mommy. I can't wait to play with you, Daddy. Which, like, this child has accumulated so much vocabulary since right. being killed yeah. and come back to life. It's kind of astounding. <laughs> <laughs> so Judd fills up a bunch of syringes with some morphine and heads over to Judd's house for the Kyle front confrontation. He runs into church, kills the cat, and then Gage keeps taunting him like we're playing hide and seek or whatever. And he finds Rachel's corpse hanging from the attic. Yep. Which is one of those, again, like, we're, if we're going to talk about, like, sure, it maybe the kid's got demon strength, but that is a 135, 140-pound woman that he, this baby, managed to drag up to an attic and, like, perf- like You lays, just don't like, have the height to do it. Yeah. Like, there's maybe, no ladder. Yeah. That's that's what I mean. Is it, like, it unless you have, like, true supernatural properties where you can, you're, you can just, like, make yourself as tall as Slenderman, uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't. It, it lost me there. I'm just thinking that's, to find that's motor really control, just, you know? Like, it's, yeah. knots are hard. They're not easy. So finally, yeah, Lewis and Gage fight, I guess, and he ends up putting the syringe in him. Lights Judd's house on fire, and we he carries Rachel's body away from it as it burns down. Pascal's last time showing up, and he's like, Lewis, please don't make it worse. You're yeah. just going to, you're this is, it's not going to, it's not going to work, man. But Lewis is just completely overcome with grief and is like, nope, she wasn't dead as long as Gage, so that's going to work this time. Ugh, idiot. Doesn't work like that. <laughs> so Lewis is sitting in the house, clearly having buried Rachel, and we see her gruesome and just, like, bloody and awful. She comes up to embrace him, and she grabs a life, a, just this giant kitchen knife, and then Lewis screams, and it cuts to black, and we get the famous song, Pet Cemetery. I do love the ending. I don't want to be buried in a The ending is very... Sorry. The ending is very... Because I... Okay, musical theater nerd, bear with me. Sure. I love Bat Boy. Bat Boy the musical is awesome. Fantastic. So Love it. This ending kind of reminds me of the ending of Bat Boy, which I love. And Bat Boy is technically like campy horror, but musical theater. Yes. Um, I mean, it's based on a National Enquirer article. Exactly. So... I kind of kept getting reminded of Bat Boy during this for some reason. I can't really articulate it other than like the campy vibes and then the ending where it's just like everyone dies. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, Except Ellie, who's just like in Chicago and now orphaned. I think that's and... what the sequel is about. I thought it's about, I don't know. I, I, I've never seen the sequel. This is my first time watching this. Yeah. I knew about it, but I didn't know like anything other than like. The pet cemetery brings pets back to life, maybe? Yeah, that's what I had always heard about it. But it was so much more, maybe too much. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. That ending, so they had originally shot a more ambiguous final scene that's closer to the book's original scene, Mm -hmm. which is the undead Rachel entering the kitchen while Lewis plays solitaire, and that's it. Oh, so it's more open-ended. We don't right. really get... Okay. So Lambert wanted that ending because she called it the, the more spooky, sad, tragic ending. Because um, the audience knows it's not going to be what he wants. Um, she's not going to come back as his wife. I kind of like the campy ending, though. Yeah. Just because of those two gave us really campy performances. Yeah. I mean, the studio... It, it was the reason the studio was just like... The reason why it happens is because the studio was like, "Oh no, no, no! We need to really—that's too tame. We gotta, we gotta, go, we gotta gruesome it up at the end." Yeah. So they I, redid her special effects makeup and they made her kill him. 
I get both sides. Yeah. I get both sides, but I do think that the the for me, the correct choice was made. Yeah, I I, I would disagree there, but I I see it. So you know. So you had a interview you wanted to talk about, right? Yeah, um, Entertainment interviewed uh, Mary Lambert about her experience directing this, and through that interview, I found some just kind of interesting facts about mainly about the artistic direction of right. the film. So in in the house where Zelda is, so I guess Rachel's childhood home, there's that creepy painting. Yes. Of the person. Yes. Um. So. Let's see. The interviewer asks, what's the story behind the creepy painting of the child and the cat that turns up in Rachel's childhood home? And if you guys aren't um, recalling what this looks like, it's kind of crazy. It looks like this very depressed toddler who has like a feral cat next to it. And it's in a top hat and a in a oh, yeah. um, greenish blue kind of like nightgown with some pantaloons on as well. Right. It, it kind of mirrors what Zelda ends up wearing. Yeah. Um, it's that same color and kind of like gown type gown type thing. Sure. So Mary says, I always had a fascination with those old New England paintings. It actually was because of the high infant mortality rate. So many children died at an early age and they wouldn't have any photographs of them or pictures so they would dress them. A lot of those pictures are of dead children that have been dressed so their parents can remember them. That's why they're so creepy. Those portraits of two, three, four, five-year-old children dressed in weird little outfits and really stiff. That was my inspiration for how Gage comes back because that's a form of bringing somebody back from the dead. Was these oh, paintings? That's so creepy. I ha- I actually have heard about this before. That like yeah. because you couldn't get a photo in time and photos took so long to take and were expensive. Like if a baby died, you're like, well, put them in this weird outfit and I'm just gonna hold my dead baby. Exactly, exactly. So they had that painting painted especially for the movie. They didn't just find it. Oh well, um, that was an original? Just like It was done an original, for... just done for the for the for the movie. Oh my god, I wanna find it. Yeah. And so then she kinda shouts out Marlene Stewart, who is the costume designer yes. who also worked with her on the Madonna videos and other videos, said first we designed the costume that we were going to put Gage in at the end, and then we had the portraitist do the painting of the little boy in the costume that reflects it. And then she goes on to talk about, then we designed the costume for Zelda to be like the Nightmare Girl version of it. Hmm. So it's kind of like, it's kind of interesting that a lot of this movie's creative direction hinges on this like really creepy stiff painting of uh, this uh, toddler. It's funny how much that influenced. That's awesome. Well, and it's, and there's a through line there because, so then she says, so it's really kind of the evil spirit working through all these machinations to come back and destroy Rachel. Because you've got Zelda as this, you know, haunting element. Right. And then you've got Gage who actually kills Rachel. Rachel, yeah, and then you've got the portrait that that was on the wall by the stairs leading up to Zelda's room. So Rachel always had to see it, and it was a direct connotation to like going up to check on Zelda. So yeah. it it tormented her as a kid because also it's just really fucking creepy. Like even if it didn't wasn't connected to her having to go upstairs to Zelda, then it still was just creepy. Oh my God. So, Sorry, my, I'm like not saying anything. I'm just like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. So then they, in this interview, they go on to talk about alternate casting. And apparently she kind of had to cape for Fred Gwynn, who plays um, John. Apparently it wasn't, there was a little bit of pushback, but 
she was able to convince like no this is our this is our guy was it because they thought he would be too recognizable as the guy who was on television forever as Herman Munster I could see that as being she doesn't give a reason but um, it was overcome whatever that reason was was overcome right. pretty quickly probably once they saw him yeah you know like probably once they saw him in the room I yeah would... I could see a tester of him being just like oh no definitely love this guy he's great yeah yeah exactly and what's interesting is she talks about when she asked Dee Dee Ramon because because uh, we talked about at the top of the episode how Stephen King is obsessed with the Ramones yes um how it's talked about plenty of times in the book and that's why the Ramones are playing on that radio in the right, semi right right and then Mary Lambert good friends with Dee Dee Ramon and she says I was like Dee Dee would you write a song about Pet Cemetery?" oh yeah yeah sure it took him about 24 hours and it's so obvious the lyrics being I don't want to be buried in the Pet Cemetery. <laughs> I don't want to live this life again and so then she says she says but you know what Dee Dee had a really, really tough life. That was the secret of most of their music. It, it, it seems really simple, kind of like a Jackson Pollock painting, like, oh, I could do that. It's so stupid. But there's always this incredible germ of truth in it that's so simple, that's like so true. And I don't think Dee Dee did want to live this life again. Yeah. So it was kind of some interesting insight to like, yes, we were we were joking last night that that the chorus of that song gives away the entire movie. Right, yes. You know, it's 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 the it's if you had to sum up the movie in one sentence. And I just thought that was really interesting insight since it sounds like she was very close to Dee Dee. Definitely. And I don't know, I think that I think that the history uh behind the making of this movie is more interesting than the movie itself. Yeah, um, I think that's the case for a lot of Stephen King movies or adaptations. Yeah, 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 which brings up the idea of adaptations. Yeah. Which this one I don't think is a great example of a well-done adaptation. I would say, I mean, The Shining is probably the best, but it's nothing like the book. Um, yeah, so... Carrie's another one yeah. that I think is really well done. And this it's one, closer to the book. Yes, this one not so much. Right, so... For a long time, I've I've been that guy who's like, yeah, don't adapt books into movies for the most part. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is like full novels because everybody keeps trying to do it, but it's the wrong medium. And now that we have prestige TV, that's the right medium. Yeah. And what I've noticed is that it's like it's hard to whittle it down because when you're in a book, the more details you get, usually the the better. But until in a, he spends seven pages describing a lamp. But yes. 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 That's a little much. But you can digest subplots a lot easier than you can on screen. Definitely. And I think that that's where this movie suffered was just doing too it's much. Just, it's, it's so many subplots. It's a, It feels like a thousand subplots because there's Pascal, there's Missy, there's Judd, there's... The history of uh, Tilly, or not Tilly, <laughs> uh, Timmy uh, Bitterman or whatever, the the kid who was brought back after World War II. Yes. The Zelda-Rachel thing, Ellie's situation, there's the Gage plot, there's the church plot, there's the beef between Lewis and Rachel's family. Like, there's so it's a lot. much information, and you're just sort of like, which bit of this is important and which bit of this is doesn't need to be here and it's it's hard as a director like i i've never done an adaptation i've been a part of adaptations and it's tough because the thing is no matter how well you do an adaptation and by well i mean actually let me back up a little bit or let me finish that thought and then i'll, I'll run back so it's hard as a director with adaptations uh, even though i haven't 
myself directed I haven't directed an adaptation before mm-hmm. I've been a part of them and the the big issue that you're always going to run into is that fans of the story the original book or whatever it is are always going to remember more details and demand that you have put them in yeah this is you, you see this all the fucking time with Marvel nerds of which I'm one like not the movies so much they're fine they're decent adaptations of the material but I'm not begging them to put in my favorite storyline or some weird like storyline from the comic books because it doesn't necessarily adapt well and it doesn't belong there. Yeah, I think a lot of people make the mistake when they um, don't separate the entities. Right. Like you can have a really great book that is adapted to film, but but you have to treat them as, as separate as well. It's, it's a very yeah. fine line to walk, and I think that it takes a lot of care to make a lot of decisions with that. Right. Because you've got the people who are like diehard book fans who no matter how great you make the film, they're probably still going to say that the book was better. Yeah, everybody but, does that, and they're not always correct. Like, yeah. I don't love American Psycho, but the movie's way the fuck better than the book. Yeah. The and, book is garbage. Yeah, but that's an example of a well-adapted movie. I think the adaptation was very strong. Uh, yeah. I, like we said, we can even just look at Stephen King adaptations. Carrie, super strong in both iterations. Yeah. Fucking The Shining, one of the best adapted books of all time. But they they kept it simple. Because yes. movie plots have to be simple. You've got an hour and a half, two hours max. Yeah, because the viewer is already taking in so much that if you if you try to just throw all these other things, it's just... It almost does the opposite of keeping them engaged. For me, yeah. too many things are thrown at me. I get bored or frustrated that I'm not following, and and I, I tune out. Yeah, I keep thinking I missed something. Exactly, and then I'm just like, well, I don't know what's going on. Do I need? To, I don't even know where I need to rewind to. Yeah. I don't. You know what I mean? So sometimes when it just the plot gets too convoluted, I just can't. I, I can't stay engaged. It's it's yeah. the other end of the spectrum of like nothing's happening. This is fucking boring. The cinematography is <laughs> not even great. And the other side of that is kind of what happened with this movie. I feel like right um, where you it's it's all just fan service stuff too. It's like you're ticking off the boxes of like okay we mentioned this plot. Okay we mentioned this plot. Okay we mentioned this plot. Yeah, and that's not storytelling. That's a recounting of that's what I do when I go through and read a plot. Yeah. That is not the that is not storytelling. I don't yeah. think I don't pretend like I'm doing storytelling at the top of these episodes. It almost feels like they tried to satisfy the book readers too much by like being like, yeah. "Oh, you can't say that we didn't like even drop this. We didn't yeah. mention this. We didn't show you this." It's just like, "Well, you've got people who don't really like or haven't read the the book being like, "What the fuck is the Yeah. <laughs> like I mean, it doesn't really even make me want to read the book because if you just showed me the book completely, then I'm kind of like, "I'm good." Yeah, exactly. I I'm not like enthused like I'm not I'm not inspired to go read this book right no, now. No, I'm not either. But I, I do want to talk about where this movie does win. Yes, um, we should I think that's a good way to end on this. Yeah, this movie this movie wins on capitalizing on all of our fears of death and having to experience grief. Yes. It and it does a really great job of exploring that. And because it's 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 something that everyone is going to experience at one point in time, absolutely. Whether it's a parent, grandparent, pet, like we go, it's it's great that we kind of start with Ellie, yes. and her idea of death and grief, which is she knows nothing about it. Yeah, she's a blank um, slate. So, and that's where we all start. Usually, usually, I mean, we encounter death first with pets. Usually, 
For um, a lot of people, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm just saying that uh, un- obviously, unfortunately, that's not the case for everyone. Yeah. Some people lose a parent very young. Some people lose other people in their lives. But I think, I think in general, people learn it by like losing a fish or losing, you know sure, what I mean? Yeah. Losing their family dog or cat or... Going upstate to a farm. Right, yeah. The kids are often told that like uh, we had to send... We had to send a boxer up to the farm or whatever. Right. And um, the kid's just like, okay. And then it's like years later, they're like, wait a minute. There's no farms in New York City. Yeah, what the fuck? Mom, dad, what? (laughs) Rude. So rude. But yeah, so I think that this movie really succeeds in really diving into the psyche of what happens when, when you are going through grief and people's fear of death. Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, when King was writing the story, he he definitely took as he always did. He took parts of his own life for, to inspire this. Yeah. So his daughter's cat had been killed, right? Run over, and he's like, "Oh, well, what if we? What if I wrote a story that was like, oh yeah, that? And then what? Like, but I wouldn't it be terrifying if it came back? But it was wrong. Yeah. Like, still looked and." seemed like the cat you had before but it wasn't the right cat anymore yeah it's turning that dial to the left a little bit yeah exactly but then he took it even further and he was like oh well i would basically just be writing the monkey's paw Um, exactly exactly like be careful what you wish for it and oh what is that line that judd always says sometimes it's better to be dead or sometimes sometimes dead is better sometimes dead is better that's right sometimes dead is better and and that that is another way that this movie is successful in looking at at the stages of grief yeah. where you want someone back and you're bargaining and doing all of that and the line sometimes dead is better is a bit of a, like a learning tool right because what if that person comes back and it's just painful or like when you have seen a loved one go through a terminal illness and it's yes. and it's a, a question of quality of life so it's not even your own selfish like i want them back thing it's like but if they came back and they were in severe pain all the time and causing pain, then sometimes it's yeah, dead as better. because I think that's what the Missy storyline is about. Yes. Of like, she doesn't want to be, because we find out that it is can- stomach cancer. Yes. And that's what, because that's what she writes in her note. Yeah. And even the hesitation, she is that moment of, is dead better than living? Exactly. And she isn't sure about her choice on our interpretation of that scene. She's not sure of her choice, but the choice is made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm also thinking about when we have the flashback to Timmy. Mm-hmm. As he's killing his own father, he screamed, he's screaming, I don't want to live, daddy. I don't want to live, daddy. Exactly. So that that's or like actually... hurts to live or something like that. Yeah. That's what I was getting at when I was saying like it's that piece of information was given to me as when you bring them back, they're in pain. And that's also yeah. why they're kind of a demonized version of themselves. Because... Sure. I mean, I mean, I can't imagine... Yeah, I think it just feeds into their, like, acting out. Especially when we see the cat first. Yeah. Acting out probably in pain. Because, you know, animals can't communicate that to us in any other way. So that's that's kind of what I was getting at. Um, I think that's I think that's absolutely what's good about this i mean for me it's especially the balance between tragedy and fear yeah um because king's even said that this is this one that scares him the most 
For sure, because it's very real. It's yeah. a very real thing that everyone is going to inevitably go through. It's a part of life, and that. Yeah, I um, yeah, it's it's something that yeah we can all deeply relate to is a fear of losing. Like, cause he he started it with like, what if it was our son that had died instead? Yeah, that was how he like moved from cat to, to to this movie right yeah it really gets your mind going of how um how quickly life can be taken and and that that's exactly what this story capitalizes on which is why i think it's a really good and cool concept yeah and and why i think the book was probably very successful it's just that the adaptation is where this fails yeah, and I, I think that I think that's exactly right. And I, I think the adaptation is not a complete failure because I do get that does come across in the movie, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's not a complete failure. I just think it could be tighter. Absolutely. Yeah. I w- am interested now to see the, the most recent adaptation from last year in 2019. Yeah. I would, uh, if, if nothing else, because John Lithgow is in it yeah, as Judd. As and Judd. I, I would mm-hmm. love to see that. But it's one of those things that I hope that they did the right thing in trimming it. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Streamlining is really to what I mean. See. Yeah, because we've talked a lot about conservative filmmaking on this podcast. Yes, and this adaptation would have adaptations always benefit from conservatism of, of shots and dialogue and mm-hmm. uh, uh, plot lines. Yeah, I think that's something that just no one does, and that's why it's hard. Because again, you're going to get yelled at by the f- neckbeards. But is it better to make good art and get shouted at for it, or exactly if you if you feel like you can stand on it at the end of the day. You know? Yeah, and again, I think this is a movie you can stand on. Yeah, it's it just not, should have been. It's not tighter. terrible. It just should no. have been tighter. I think yeah. that's really all you have to say about this. Yeah, I'll watch it again. It's a fun. It's a fun romp. It really is. It kind of gave me. It kind of gave me like Beetlejuice vibes. Even a it bit. Gave me yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know what it was about it. There's. There's. There is definitely something about it that is aesthetically entertaining was it giving you beetlejuice vibes because of the home alone scene in this and then Catherine o'hara who was Maybe. in home alone and it, then and also it might beetlejuice? Have, yes it might have all just connected and probably would have been the time that it was made and everything and just well, all just, of that also Catherine O'Hara. Catherine o'hara connects us all yeah down down <laughs> um but yeah i think i think that's 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 about it that's my thesis statement is that you know it could have it could have been tighter yeah have been a tighter adaptation but would watch again it's entertaining absolutely mm-hmm. all right guys you know where to find us on instagram at horror babes podcast on twitter at horror babes pod and our website is horrorbabespod.com. that is all accurate information until next time bye, bye babes, babes.